Jamar, what I'd like to do is add to what you presented, which was so critical and important and powerful. I'd like to add the other element of your book, which is the question of Christian and theological complicity with the entire journey. Mm -hmm. And part of what you wrote about are the various ways in which Christian leaders and, and evangelists throughout America um, were using rhetorical or even attitudinal posture. You are, they didn't have the will, as you were mentioning. And so I'd kind of like to hear a little bit more about, if you can sum up portions of your book, how has complicity been found in the teachings and the posture and the structures of the institutional church? Good, yeah. Um, so, I mean, we can point to particular doctrines, right? So I'm most theologically familiar with Southern Presbyterianism, of all things, and they have a doctrine called the spirituality of the church, which says that the church's mission is primarily ministerial and declarative, and the church is the keeper of the gospel, and so the idea is that Christians' main job and the main way they change the world is by evangelizing and through conversion, individual conversion. Uh, the flip side of that the extension of, of the spirituality of the church says the church doesn't get involved in political or civil affairs. The problem with that is they're very selective about what they deem political or civil affairs. So when it came to issues in the 20th century like prayer in schools or reading the Bible or abortion, that is, it, it, those things are enshrined in, in legal policies, and yet conservative Christians had no problem uh, lobbying, advocating, getting involved in the political sphere. The line tended only to be drawn when it came to issues of racial justice. So all of a sudden, the church is involved in all these other ways. You can think of prohibition. You, you can even think of uh, churches in the South lobbying for the preservation of slavery. Um, but then when it comes to racial justice, oh, no, 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 we can't. Spiritual, we're a spiritual institution. We can't get involved. Um, is the is the question the way the way it shows up in theology? Is that your question? Sure. I think there are theological. That's one of the theological premises. Yeah. Is that what's most important is our spiritual being, right, right, but right. not necessarily our physical, social, or, or political being, right? Right. That's, so that's a that's a theological point. Um, there's also. Um, a missional aspect. You write about Billy Graham in your book, which yeah. I thought was really telling because there were portions of Billy Graham's ministry um, that were that seemed to break down these racial barriers. Mm -hmm. But yet there were other teachings and other postures of Billy Graham that were complicit and didn't push because of this missional yeah. perspective. So share with us yeah, a little bit about, that. about Billy. Let's talk about it. <laughs> um, literally the figurehead of white evangelicalism for half a century, right? And um, his, his story about where he positions himself theologically is very interesting because he's quite explicitly in his ministry saying he's not a fundamentalist. Uh, you can think of like Bob Jones as, as sort of the fundamentalist, um, the, the example there. Um, and then he does these things. Like in 1953, he pulled down the rope separating black and white people at one of his rallies. And he said, if you put that back up, I'm not speaking. 
Um, and then in 1959, he had MLK pray before one of his rallies. But by 1963, as the civil rights movement has progressed, as demonstrations are happening, as King is not backing down, um, all of a sudden he's saying, well, he needs to pump the brakes a little bit. And then Billy Graham is, is, is literally in the Oval Office with presidents from the 1950s onward. He never explicitly supports any particular president until Nixon. They were buddies. They were about the same age. They were uh, friends in, the, in a social sense as well. And so um, on one hand, it makes sense because he knew him. But on the other hand, when you look at his politics, Nixon's politics, uh, it's very troubling from, from a racial standpoint. So you have uh, Nixon and other political conservatives touting this, this phrase, law and order, which is dog whistle. It's code for cracking down on black people who are rising up in mainly in urban uprisings. Um, and that's sort of the stance. And then later in life, Graham is reflecting on his racial legacy. And he says, I wish I would have marched at Selma. I wish I would have been a part of some of those more public demonstrations. Um, so that's another lesson, too. There's change over time, right? Uh, people aren't just stuck in a moment. None of us want to be labeled for one of the things we did. But people hold up, especially when Graham died not long ago, hold him up as this sort of paragon of a Christian leader who was um, out front in racial justice. And at best, he wasn't as bad as other people. I, I just don't want to over overdo that. Uh, and his audience remained throughout his entire career, mainly, um, although he went all over the world, but, but, but his ardent supporters were uh, not only white evangelicals, but politically conservative white evangelicals as well. If you don't mind me asking a little bit more personal question, the question I actually asked you last night, which is you, you are trained in Reformed theology. You, you went to Reformed Theological Seminary. You got your master's divinity in that way of thinking about Christianity. My question is, what, first of all, what is Reformed theology? Maybe for those who are a little bit unfamiliar with that particular construct. You also then have done this incredible historical and theological work through these theological lenses exposing the complicity through these theologies and through these teachings and through which are deeply embedded in these denominations. Where has that taken you personally in your faith, in your theology, and how you think about God and how you think about the church and all of those things? So I speak of the stuff I know about because I've been through it. Um, not every black person grew up in a black church. I didn't even grow up Christian. And much of my background when I became a Christian was in these white evangelical and reformed circles. Part of that, this is a whole other history, but um, in the mid-2000s, the, the sort of resurgence of Christian hip-hop and a lot of those artists being uh, influenced by reformed theology as well. And so that's, that's kind of how it starts to permeate some different circles, um, especially among people of color. But Reformed theology, um, in brief, it, it, it's a term that comes from the Protestant Reformation. 
uh, one of the main figures in Reformed theology is, is Calvin, so sometimes people emphasize the, the Calvinistic part of it. Um, but it, it, it focuses on the sovereignty of God, the centrality of God, very uh, high priority on exegesis and rightly dividing the word of truth. It's a very intellectual, heady, European type of tradition, um, which I didn't know all that when I first started learning about it. And so uh, what happened in first with Trayvon Martin, and then you start seeing sort of white Christian evangelical responses to that murder, and then amplified uh, with the killing of Mike Brown and the advent of the Black Lives Matter movement, and then you had the slew of cell phone videos of black people getting killed uh, by law enforcement. And Charlottesville, which today, August 11th, is the, the two-year anniversary of the first day of that rally. Um, tomorrow, August 12th, is the day the, the white supremacist rammed his car into the crowd and killed Heather Heyer. Um, all of that stuff sort of was an awakening for a lot of people, black and white and everyone else, about not just contemporary responses, but also the ways theology has been constructed in some ways that kind of reinforces this racial status quo. Um, a book I've always recommend is Divided by Faith by Michael Emerson and Christian Smith, which really unpacks how white evangelicals think about their theology in very individualistic terms. Westerners in general were very individual, but they show um, that white evangelicals are even more individualistic than, than typical. And when that's your framework for understanding racism, then you only think about racism as somebody using a racial slur or you know, excluding someone from your business. You're not thinking in the terms of systemic and institutional racism, which is what I started to become awakened to. And it's really caused me to try to decolonize my theology. That's the way they put it. Um, it's very Eurocentric, white-centric kind of way of thinking about the Bible. And um, it has been presented as the right way, the only way. And what I'm discovering is that, no, there are a lot of other people as we read the Bible as believers in community, and we can learn from folks who are in different locations, socially, politically, economically, all of those things. I don't know if you can get more specific because, I, A, I completely agree. You cannot read the Bible or have any particular theology without having some sort of cultural framework by which you're, you're viewing that. And um, the vast majority of the training that I got was also through a European, very white-centered, Western, individualistic mindset um, theology. Um, can, can we narrow it down to something more practical because yeah. as I'm going through that process too of trying to deconstruct mm. that and go, wait a second, that, that's not in there. That was never what Jesus and the disciples originally meant, et cetera. Are there still persisting theologies today that you see um, that are continuing in the complicity? What, what are those theologies? Because I would like to know yeah. if I'm teaching those <laughs> um, as I'm going through my process of trying if to... If you're teach. having me at your church, you're probably not. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. Well, okay. Uh, 
But I'll go back a little bit in terms of the decolonizing and just give a, give a concrete example. Um, when I was in seminary, and really all through my theological education, formally and informally, James Cone was presented as a heretic, basically. If they talked about him in an academic setting, it was to say what he got wrong. And, and I believed it, I mean, in the sense of, like, I trusted these people who had degrees, et cetera. But when all this stuff started happening in our nation and around the world, and I, I had to re-examine the faith I had been taught, and I went and read the cross and the lynching tree for myself, I was like, wow. I mean, like, wow. His diagnosis, the description, the comparison and the analogy was not just provocative theologically, but it was soul-stirring. And in a sense, I felt robbed. Why did you keep this from me? And then, you know, obviously you don't have to agree with everything in his theology, but who is that? Whose theology do we agree with everything, right? Like, Jesus, that's it. So why don't we make those same qualifications for these white Europeans like Jonathan Edwards, who owned slaves? And it always sticks out to me, again, writ large, he owned slaves. No, he owned a, a, a black teenager, a woman named Venus. And, we, and he's held up as some call him America's greatest theologian. I'm like, he's got something wrong in his theology if he thought he could own a person. But that's hardly ever stated in, in many academic circles. The, the, the question, though, that you posed, secondly, are, are, are these sort of ideas being promulgated present day in theology? Yes, but in subtle ways. Um, I mentioned it in the presentation, but white Christian nationalism is a theology that conflates race, religion, and this form of patriotism and it baptizes it with the Bible, right? So that, that, that gun rights aren't just civil rights. They are God-ordained rights. This is the way God, God wants us to protect ourselves. And, and they make the leap to say that means I can own as many guns as I want. And any efforts to change those laws or curtail those rights is not just a violation of what I perceive as my civil rights. That's actually going against what I believe about the Bible. The Civil War was not just a battle about the institution of slavery. It was a battle over the Bible and over biblical interpretation so that people used a theology, a form of theology, to justify lifelong perpetual bondage based on race. And you can sort of see echoes of that throughout time, um, particularly in the ways that, that um, we baptize some people, really conservative political and social stances, and say, this is what the Bible says, not just this is how I've learned or interpreted it. And it's often done in isolation from not only other people, but particularly marginalized people. Okay, so help us. You, you might have mentioned it. Uh, first of all, James Cone crossing the lynching tree is a phenomenal move in this direction of re-theologizing um, the, the stories that we've been told. But can you give us a quick summary of then what does the Bible say? Like, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, in light of this racial history that we have, what 
theology, teaching, posture do we actually now put in place that we actually teach? Yeah. And maybe we're building off of like James Cone. Um, we're, we've also talked about the image of God and everybody. Are there other things that we can actively pursue from a faith perspective and a teaching perspective, from a biblical perspective, that actually pursues racial justice in both the very real terms in which we presented, but also very true and real in our biblical and faith tradition? I don't know if this answers your question, but this is my response. Um, in the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, the, the, the main doctrinal dispute was the doctrine of salvation. Was it faith in works or was it faith alone, right? Martin Luther's whole thing. Um, and there were lots of tertiary issues as well, but that was sort of the hinge point. I think if there is a 21st century Reformation, then the main doctrine at issue would be the doctrine of the image of God. What, what's happening now is we live in not only an increasingly pluralistic world, but an but increasingly small world, mm -hmm. where because of technology and transportation and all of these things, we're around other people who are different pretty much more than at any period in history, right? Uh, especially in the United States. And so then how, as people of God, do we approach folks who are different? And that's fundamentally an issue of theological anthropology and the doctrine of the image of God. So I think in terms of sort of relearning or equipping ourselves theologically, we really need to dig deep into what it means to be made in the image of God. And one of the things that I learned uh, from, from black people is that the image of God is not just me individually. The image of God is us collectively. Like, and, and, and us collectively is diverse. And that in itself is part of being in the image and likeness of God. So that means diversity is not something to be uh, denigrated, but something to be celebrated. Yeah, yeah. I, I've told, some of you might have heard me tell this story that, um, that we heard of a, a Jew who went to his rabbi. He said, I want you to christen my son and I'm going to name him Adam, which is the Hebrew word that is used in Genesis chapter 1. And, he, and the rabbi says, I won't do that. I will not name your son. I will not be there to christen your son's named Adam. And he says, why? Because Adam isn't a name. Adam means humanity. And so, the, so to your particular point, there's a way of theologizing. There's a way of reading the text in its original context that brings forth. Wait, a, That's right. Adam isn't man, male, uh, masculine. Adam is the humanity that comes out of the earth, an earthling that comes out of the earth. So mm. there's, mm. yeah, I think there's, I think that's exactly where we, we need to go. Yeah. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit. I, I saw a video of you. You mentioned that you had toyed around with the idea or you really wanted to name your book The Fierce Urgency of Now, which is the last point that you mentioned. So I want to um, share some friendly fire, I guess, which is this tension. The historical journey of racial justice and pushing forward has a backlash to it, right? Mm -hmm. The development or the uprising of white supremacy and groups and ideologies that may remain subtle now become exacerbated as a result of pushing forward with racial justice. So there's, there's two parts to my question. How do you navigate the fierce urgency of now with a social reality that we're even experiencing today that you push forward with racial justice to face 
the opposing reality have a resurgence. Mm -hmm. So help us navigate that. And then part two, how do you navigate the fierce urgency of now when our psychologies are very, very slow? Mm -hmm. And people um, who may have no clue that, what? There's no racism in the church. Like, we, we don't, you know, I don't see you as a black man, right? Yeah. Things like that, right? So, but to get them to understand this history is a slow process. So those are my two main kind of wrestling points. How do you deal with the fear surgency of now? How do you wrestle with that, with the resurgence of the opposition? Um, and how do you manage that? And then when you're having conversations, especially these beautiful people that have showed up today, you know, the vast majority of them are here because they believe in it, but they're going to have conversations with people who don't. Mm -hmm. They're going to have conversations with people who are like, why did you go to that thing? What, mm -hmm. Why did you have that speaker? What was the, why was that important? There's no, you know, we're not a racist church. Yeah. These things, but that psychology is going to be slow. So yeah. I know I gave you two big questions, no, that's but good. I, I'd really love to hear your responses to that. I think one response that sort of gets at both parts is, just to be honest, I think we spend entirely too much time thinking about what other people are going to think um, when it comes to racial justice especially. So, uh, of course, you can count on a backlash or a negative reaction if you assert the dignity of all people, particularly along racial and ethnic lines. That's going to happen. Um, but I read somewhere that, that blessed are the persecuted, right? Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Um, like, this is what we signed up for. There's no other, in a, in a fallen, broken world, there's no other way to do it, where you assert righteousness in whatever sphere, and you don't expect pushback. Like, that's just, it comes with the territory in anything, in a personal relationship, in racial justice, whatever it might be. Um, so that's what, that's part of what it means to bear the cross daily is, is when we sign up with Jesus, we're signing up to walk that path of, of, of suffering and, and crucifixion for righteousness sake. So, you know, we can't as believers, let that stop us, obviously. Um, the second part of the question that it's a slow process. Um, to me, humility is everything. So if there's someone who doesn't get it, but they're willing to listen or they're willing to meet you, you know, you say, read this book and they do or watch this movie and they will, or let's meet and talk about it. And they'll, they will, you walk with them as far as they're willing to go. But that's different than the people who just give you the stiff arm from the gate. And they, they just won't, right? Like, they, they believe what they believe, and they're not even going to give you a fair hearing. And I had to learn the hard way, you know, to differentiate between those groups of people and also uh, that the Bible says, you know, go and share the gospel in, in the towns. But if they don't listen, wipe the dust from your sandals and move on. And that's like, that's not giving up on people like existentially, I, I don't like you, I hate you, whatever. That means your, your, your heart is not ready yet. And we, we, the, the Bible says it is a, a prayer to, to uh, remove hearts of stone and gives, give us hearts of flesh. And that's the prayer, right? And in some sense, folks who are there, I don't have the ability nor the desire to make a judgment about 
how surrendered they are truly to Christ. But as I was telling someone earlier, if, if I, as a black person, can sit across the table from you and share honestly my experiences, my pain, plus all this history, all this sociology, and all this stuff, and the only thing you have in response is, I don't believe it. Like, to me, that's a form of hating your brother or sister. Because just on a pure human level, you ought to be able to empathize. And the fact that you refuse to do so, you know, how can anyone say they love God but hate his brother or sister? You know? Um, you write, yeah, that's worthy of the pleasure thing. As if any of you already need any more convincing to buy the book, on page 191 you write this. <laughs> Centuries of racism in the American church cannot be overcome by pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. That's king, yeah. Yeah, oh man. <laughs> that ignore the deep social, political, and cultural divides that persist across the color line. If the church hopes to see meaningful progress in race relations during the 21st century, then it must undertake bold, costly actions with an attitude of unprecedented urgency. The solutions are simple, though not easy. They are, in many cases, obvious, though unpopular. No matter their difficulty or distastefulness, however, they are necessary in order to change the narrative of the American church and race. You mentioned Google. <laughs> I'm going to say, okay... What would you Google? Um, there was a question of, yes, there's a lot of things how we would like to hear you answer that question. What are those costly steps? What are, you said they're simple, they're not easy. Yep. Um, so what are they? Can you give us a little bit more of the tangible how? When one, one person here asked Great. me yes. to ask you that, to help a little bit more along sure. in that. Um, so if, if you get the book, I'll, I'll, I'll ruin it for you. No, I won't. It's, it's, but it, 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 the key is... All of the, the entire book is a setup for the last chapter, the fierce urgency of now. Because none of it means anything if you aren't moved to action and urgent action. And so I focus in that chapter on that which is unpopular, like reparations or something like that. But I introduce that chapter by giving you a framework. So again, the most frequent question I get is along those lines, what do we do? And I used to just give sort of a smattering of different answers. I'll try this, do that, look this up. I came up with a very simple framework that I think helps us have a more holistic approach to racial justice, and it's called the ARC of Racial Justice. It's an acronym that stands for Awareness, Relationships, Commitment. And so when we ask what we can do to work toward racial justice, it's at least those three components. One is build your awareness, which is sort of low-hanging fruit, right? Uh, it's you coming here tonight and listening to this talk. It's buying the book or any, other, any number of other books. It's watching the documentaries. Uh, I would highly recommend the, the latest one by Ava DuVernay, When They See Us, about the now emancipated or uh, exonerated Central Park Five. It is gut-wrenching, but it is really good because it is contemporary. This happened in the 80s, um, and these folks weren't out till the late 90s. Um, so uh, it, it's really good. Uh, so there's a lot of ways we can build our awareness. That's one thing. Like, don't assume that you know what racism is or how it operates or what it looks like in the past or the present. Equip yourself. 
Secondly, is relationships. Uh, this is um, the fact that, you know, to get a little theological, when God wanted to reconcile humanity to himself, he didn't send an email or a tweet. He sent his son, a person, incarnate. Why? Because all reconciliation is relational. And so we do need these interpersonal relationships. This is a congregation that's a great example of, you know, building those personal connections between people, especially for white folks. Oftentimes, the only way you start to get a sense of the bigger picture of systemic and institutional racism is through an individual who you know and trust. Because you're not going to believe the liberal media or these professors are out there, but you might believe your friend when they tell you about it. So relationships are incredibly important, but oftentimes Christians stop there. So that if we get a cup of coffee or we have lunch together, or even if we worship together in the same church, that's what fighting racism looks like. And that's basically all we need to do is be nice to people who are different from us. Um, but what I always say is that relationships are necessary, but they're not sufficient. That's not it. So that's where the C, commitment, commitment to action comes in. And when I say that, I, I, I mainly mean systemic and institutional things. So um, in the book, I talk about, you know, um, one of the things that, that, that we can do in terms of mass incarceration and criminal justice is vote for local prosecutors. Those are elected officials, district attorneys, and um, they have enormous power in the criminal justice system um, as folks are coming into courts to strike plea deals, to um, recommend sentencing, to put together evidence, et cetera, et cetera. And oftentimes they run on a record of high convictions, a 95% conviction rate. And they're not really worried about the actual particulars of the case and the guilt or innocence of a person. And so can we get folks who understand the dignity of human beings, even folks who have made mistakes, and get that, right? So another one, one of my favorite ones to talk about is making Juneteenth a national holiday. And uh, Juneteenth is a mashup of the words, yeah. It, it comes from the words June and 19th, and it's the day when um, enslaved people in Texas finally learned about their emancipation much, much later than the proclamation itself was issued. And it's the oldest cel celebration of black emancipation in the country. But it's not just about black history. This is a monumental event in U.S. history. I mean, it took, to this day, America's bloodiest war is the Civil War. And it took the Civil War to finally abolish slavery legally, right? And isn't that a day we should pause to commemorate? Um, so celebrating Juneteenth annually as, as a national holiday, or at least as a holiday that, that we acknowledge, um, would, would let us do a couple of things. It would, number one, uh, tell us where we've been. Um, it would help us celebrate that we're not there now. Like, it's, I'm glad I'm not in physical chains right now. Like, that's progress. We ain't, but the last part is we're not where we need to be. And so every year it would remind us of how far we've come, but how far we still have to go. So those bigger things, not just, you know, having another panel. Well, you mentioned reparations. You mentioned take down Confederate monuments. You mentioned learn from the black church. And then I love that, sorry, this one made me laugh. Start a new seminary. <laughs> like, okay, I'll just start a seminary. <laughs> um, you could. 
it's not that hard. Online learning makes it easy. You, you want it right now? What, you, want it, you want to make an announcement We right just now? need the funds. We just need you know, the funds. We could make it happen. <laughs> uh, host Freedom Schools and pilgrimage, uh, Pilgrimages make Juneteenth a national holiday. Participate in the modern, modern day civil rights movement. Publicly denounce racism. Start a civil rights movement toward the church. So I mean direct action, nonviolence techniques that we apply toward the church. So yeah. it's some of these like national conferences of denominations that are standing for abhorrent things policy-wise or socially. Why aren't we marching or boycotting or picketing or things of that nature? And I also think it's a, it's a broader witness issue, right? Like so many people are repelled from Jesus and Christianity because of what they interpret it is from these larger institutions or these talking heads. And, and so I think it's almost a missional thing to where when people who are not Christian see us holding ourselves accountable, there's a realness and an authenticity to it yeah. that, that commends the gospel. That's so good. Friends, do you have any questions? Please come to the microphone um, and ask. All right. Hello. Greetings. Greetings. Um, given the historical perspective that you shared with us um, regarding the Christian church today, why would African Americans in particular, and more globally, people of color, mm -hmm. continue to embrace the tenets of Christianity mm -hmm. as it was introduced to us over 400 years ago? Thank and I know, and I know that's a heavy question, but in your perspective. This is, this is the <laughs> and if you have yeah. another question, please come to the microphone so we can get through the questions. Because Christianity is a global religion, why would a person of color, particularly a black person, still want anything to do with Christianity? Is Christianity the white man's religion? Um, no, it's not. Uh, we worship a, a brown-skinned Middle Eastern Jew, right? Like, clearly, it's not the white man's religion. Um, core theological doctrines like the Trinity and the deity of Christ were being hashed out in North Africa long before... People in Europe were, were talking about Christianity. Um, we have so much to learn from our brothers and sisters in the global south uh, and on the continent of Africa, and the gospel is exploding in these places. Um, and in addition, just domestically speaking, uh, for centuries, black people have seen through the hypocrisy of what Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove calls slaveholder Christianity. Um, you can think of Frederick Douglass's great um, a, a, you know, appendix in one of his biographies, uh, w which was about hating the Christianity of slaveholders, but loving the pure, peaceable Christianity of Christ. And so they knew there was a distinction there. Um, and so for me personally, it has been a recovery of and an appreciation for the historic black church tradition and the saints who came before us, this great cloud of witnesses who, in spite of the abuses and misuses of the Christian religion, saw and felt the liberatory message of the gospel in spite of it all, and then took it and made it their own, and, and, and it became a force for freedom. Yeah. Okay, we're just going to take these three questions here. Yeah, sorry. 
We'll just take, just because of time, we'll take these three questions and we'll bring I'll be short. this segment to a close. And then, of course, you are so kind to stick around and talk to people as well. So, yeah. please. Okay, I have two questions, one of which is, I just got two questions. <laughs> I'm going to ask them. All right. One question is, I noticed that Lecrae wrote the foreword of the book, and he, he, in my observation, was really a lightning rod for a lot of evangelical Christian backlash because he was so entrenched in the culture. That's right. And uh, that, that definitely, I saw a divorce with the whole CHH movement there. And I, my question is, is like, I guess, did he volunteer to write the forward or something <laughs> like that? Because just in general, someone, whoever the, the front runner is, tends to, to, to catch it a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the, you know, that's just the reality. And the second one is, is that as an African-American, I constantly feel that, I'm always taking like the under position. Like I'm, I'm initiating the conversation with some of those who are, you know, I, I'm in, engaging with someone I know to be a white nationalist, but doesn't know it, you know, like they, they, that's real. They don't yeah. know it or, yeah. and there's always this like, why is it feels like as an African American or the person of color, why does the oppressed have to almost appease or make the oppressor feel comfortable to, to feel, to, to activate the change right. when the reality is it doesn't even look like, you know, like I still had to play your game right. in order to have the conversation to yeah. see some type of substantive move. And those Good. Questions. Stay close in case I forget your second okay, part. Cool. Um, so, no, Lecrae didn't volunteer. I had to ask him nicely okay. and repeatedly, but he said yes. <laughs> He's a busy guy, yeah. two-time Grammy winner. Um, uh, but I thought he would be the perfect individual because what he went through exemplified so much of what I was trying to communicate in the book. Somebody who was, I mean, his main audience for a long time was white evangelical Christians. And when he started speaking out about racial, racial issues and when he tried, this is broader than just that, because early 2011, maybe, uh, he, he started to shift so that he could speak to the people in his context more directly, and there was a backlash against that because they were like, oh, well, he's not being Christian anymore, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, he was meeting people where they are, still the same message, and then it got amplified when he started talking about racial justice issues, right? Um, and then he had to go through a, a sort of separation, and there's a, there's a quote in an op-ed he wrote for the Huffington Post where, no, it was an interview on Truth's Table, which you should all subscribe to, Three Black Christian Women. It's amazing. Um, Truth's Table. Um, and uh, he, he said he went from crowd, you know, doing concerts with 3,000 people to 300. But he knew those 300 were truly about what he was about. And he didn't have to soften it or cater to a crowd that couldn't hear what he was really trying to say. So I was very grateful that he did the foreword. And the second part is how come we have to appease? Yeah, like as, as why does the oppressed have to yeah. appease the oppressor or make, as much as you said, not caring, right. but there's still a level of making the oppressor yeah. feel comfortable just to begin to approach the conversation of reconciliation yeah. and some of it being like actual ignorance and stuff. Like I said, I'm trying to purposely engage yeah, the conversation good. of loving, you know, somebody who I want to choke him. Uh -huh. <laughs> I'm not all the way taken yet. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I do recommend the book White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. Yeah. 
uh, she breaks it all the way down about the, the, the sensitivity that so many white people have when you start to bring this conversation up. Um, but I, I, I also think, so there's a couple things. One, black people and people of color really need to be careful about self-care so that you are not going into simply an abusive situation, right? Like there's, there's a sense in which um, these, some of these are toxic relationships and we need to get out of them, at least take breaks from them, right? So there's a certain amount of wisdom and loving your neighbor as you love yourself, and loving yourself means taking care in these conversations. But there's another sense in which, I'll go back to an earlier answer, we, we, we care too much about what other people think. So the civil rights movement was actually about provoking a reaction. It was about demonstrating that in the face of, of, of love and reasonable requests and nonviolence, we got met with hoses and dogs and batons and imprisonment. And that was supposed to provoke a moral response, which it did when you saw these pictures of what happened in Selma or of lynching victims, right? And so there's a sense in which that backlash is a sign that you're, you're being provocative in, in the right way. Now, don't be a jerk. I mean, you can easily be provocative because you're just rude and insensitive. But um, there's also a sense in which you want people to wrestle and grapple. And usually when it's that sort of negative and pushback response, it's, it, it's them trying to defend their own self-image as not a racist or not a bad person. But you just got to let them sit with that. You present it, let Jesus work on them. You know? How you doing, brother? Hi, my topic, uh, my question was on the topic of reparations, which was brought up uh, a few times. Uh, you had mentioned that uh, racism was a symptom of greed, uh, and it seems that to follow that, then economic disparity would be a symptom of racism. Uh, so it, it feels to me that uh, reparations seem like an economic band-aid to a uh, societal problem of racism and a human problem of greed. Uh, so my question is, uh, you mentioned there are different ways you could support, uh, different ways to do reparations. So the question is, why do you support reparations, and how would you go about doing that as a policy? Yeah, that great question. Um, so race and class are always always intertwined in in complicated ways. It's 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 never just one to the exclusion of the other. Um, I'm not an economist, and so this isn't my academic area of expertise. But what I am encouraged by is that there are more and more scholars out there who have plans, actual plans, up to the point where they're actually calculating dollar amounts of what it might look like to give reparations. Even several Democratic presidential um, candidates have come out with, in support of study committees on reparations, which th we've had them, but for presidential candidates to say that is a huge, huge step. Um, and my support of it is simply that there's no sense in which we can say we've done much about racial justice if we haven't approached the economics of racism. And it's really not just slavery. It's not just what happened in the 1800s. It's the fact that when unions were forming, they excluded black people and other people of color. So you couldn't organize. Um, it's the fact that when promotions were given out, 
that didn't go to black people. It's the fact that after the war, and they were passing out the benefits of the GI Bill with, with home loans and college loans. That didn't go. To, so, so it doesn't have to be, oh, were you a slave? It's just, it can be very local and specific and very contemporary, really. So we need to deal with that. And, and, and to the extent that we don't, we haven't actually acknowledged slavery and its subsequent effects as economically exploitative. And so that's why we have these huge disparities, right, between the, the racial gap, which is enormous and in, in some cases growing. And that, why is there a racial gap? You can only really say it's one of two things. Black people are bad with money or there's something wrong with the system, right? Now, if it was one or two folks, yeah, they don't know what they're doing. But it's a whole group of us? Nah. Well, and at... at... <laughs> nah. <laughs> Add to that the compounding disparity of generations, right? Mm -hmm. That's, that's mm -hmm. the other piece of the puzzle, is that the further down you go, this just compounds. That's exactly right. right. That, right? Please. Okay, last question, then we'll... Hi, my name is Sarah Park. Uh, thank Hi. you for being here. Uh, I experienced something really strange recently. Um, I was going to a historically black church for a while. And I uh, observed that as I saw Asian-looking people coming to the church, I was growing wary of them hmm. because I wasn't sure what kind of Asian they were, whether they were more the white Asian or a person of color Asian. And I, as a church member, needed to vet them out to see if they were safe. Mm. And if they weren't, then I needed to do something about it because I, too, was an Asian-looking body. Mm. So I guess my question to you is, when you see an Asian-looking body in the room, does anything register, like, hopes or expectations of what you think their role could be? Because I'm an American, too, and uh, I feel like there is something strategic about an entire group of people who can be treated as white people or as black people based on what's convenient in the times. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. if you see any kind of strategic advantage for my people who look like me, I'd love to know your thoughts about that. Yeah. You took us from 301 to grad school. <laughs> wow. First of all, thank you for the humility of that question. You know, um, secondly, um, this is something I'm, I'm learning more about um, sort of the inter-ethnic, interracial dynamics a little bit more. Um, there is a great post, or uh, the great graphic that was in the Washington Post a, a long time ago, but it talked about um, the, the, the proportion of friends of different races in your social network there would be. And it mainly looked at, at white and black people, and it said, um, in a 100-friend scenario, white people have, I want to say, 91 white friends. And then for black people, it was a bit lower in the 80s. But what stuck out to me is that we had one Asian friend in that 100-friend scenario. So when I see an Asian person, especially in a Christian context, I'm like, hey, will you be my friend? <laughs> because this is a part of the body and of God's creation that I don't have access to unless I'm intentional about initiating it. And so going to a black church, I mean, that's, that's a huge step. Um, but I talked about in the presentation the sort of continuum of whiteness. And from what I've learned from 
brothers and sisters of, of Asian backgrounds and Asian American backgrounds is uh, they can be the model minority. In many senses, they can be considered a person of color, but, but not a threatening or an offensive kind of person of color. And that is a, a certain kind of social privilege to where you can have conversations and have access that I may not get as a black person, which is the, always the antithesis of white. Um, no matter how I dress, how I talk, I'm gonna be black. And I might be one of the good ones, but if I get pulled over or say the wrong thing, no longer, right? So within that, I think what you're doing, you're on the right track. And so I think what would be incredibly powerful is you talking to those other folks who are Asian, who may not be where you are, because I certainly, I probably won't get the opportunity to do so, but you will have it. And then we, the way white supremacy work is divide and conquer. So that people of color who have so much in common because of various kinds of oppression, they separate us. And even if you can't become completely white, you can gain some cultural currency of whiteness that then separates you from other people of color. And so dismantling that and walking people through that, I think, would be incredibly powerful. Okay, we'll bring it to a close. Um, I, I'm, uh, this is my, one of my favorite questions. Um, resources, books, yeah. other things that you would recommend to continue the journey, other things that have helped you along the way. I know there's some people here that would love to hear what has kind of informed your work yes. and journey. So give us some recommendations, I suppose. Well, first, I got to put in a plug for our national conference. Reconciliation is relational. So you got to get around other people who believe this stuff, who are working for change, and especially if you're sitting here and you're tired or you feel wounded by the church or by your community, this, we hope and pray, will be a place of healing. So that's happening October. That's this thing, right? That's the logo. You can go to joyandjustice.com uh, and register or sponsor someone, particularly black people. We are The Witness, a black Christian collective. Uh, we are not exclusive, but we are specific. Um, and so, you know, we, we, we don't make apologies about that. We want this to be a place of healing for anyone, but especially for black people. Um, and uh, it's in Chicago, October 4th and 5th. So come to the Midwest. We won't have as much sun or beach, but it'll be nice. And uh, joyandjustice.com. So that's one. Other resources, we'll just take it. Awareness, relationships, commitment. Awareness, I told you about when they see us. I told you about divided by faith. I told you about white fragility, Robin DiAngelo. Uh, just Mercy by Brian Stevenson is a good one. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff, but I really think history's critical. So we live in America, but we're so bad with American history or even just history in general, right? And so we need to learn and, and start close. Learn the history of your own city and your own community. Um, it was shocking to me to, to just go around where I lived and look at the names of counties and see how many of them were named after Confederates or, segregations or segregationists or racist. Who is that statue to? Why is it? I was just reading about uh, Terman Park. They, they renamed the school because he was a segregationist, but the park is still named after him. Um, so that stuff is here even on the West Coast, right? Uh, so, so, and then learning about your own history. There was so much black history I didn't know as a black person. And, and, and that, it's oftentimes tragic, but it's also empowering, 
right? So learning about, so as you build your awareness, focusing specifically on history. Um, relationally, I mean, a lot, it, it's a very different context out here where there's so many different people. Um, and you're interacting, and in a church like this, you're, you're worshiping together. The, the two things I would say is, one, make sure that you're living diverse lives, not just on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday, right? So where you live, where your kids go to school, who you socialize with, look at your Facebook pictures. <laughs> if it's homogenous, that tells you something about how you spend your social time, you know? If the birthday party is all people who look like you, or whatever it might be, particularly for folks in the majority, particularly for white folks, right? Um, if you're a person of color, you might need those ethnic-specific spaces for recovery and health uh, because you got to go back into a world where, where it's harder. Um, but making sure you live integrated lives Monday through Saturday. And then uh, also having those hard conversations with the people in your circles who don't get it, um, particularly white folks talking to other white folks. When, when, when white people ask me what they can do, the first thing I say is get your people. Um, because folks are out here wiling, and we got to have some ambassadors being salt and light and the aroma of Christ to these folks who just, just doing outright dehumanizing things or supporting dehumanizing um, injustices that are going on. And then lastly, on the commitment aspect, I mentioned, you know, figure out who is your, your local prosecutor, Look up their website and their platform and figure out what they stand for. Voter suppression is real. I'm not at all convinced that we're going to have a fair and free election in 2020. Um, and so registering people to vote, attending city council and school board meetings so you know what's happening locally is a big thing. Um, and I used to be a teacher and a principal so supporting public schools. <laughs> Jamar, we can't thank you enough for your work and the gift of your presence here and for sharing your truth-telling, which is so critically important, and our prayer. And we, we're just honored by your presence thank and you. for you to say yes to us. And our prayer is that your work and your voice and all of the amazing prophetic presence that you are pushing into the world and into the church just continues to thank be you. advanced. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I've loved it. Thank you. Thanks, brother.